Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are joining us for the first time today, you can start off on day 288. And in case you forget, we like to answer questions every chance we can, week after week, at the end of our podcast. And so we would love for you to send in those questions. There's three ways that you can do that. One, they're all digital, by the way. You can not you can send us a letter, but it might take a little bit more time for us to get to it. It's true. But you can send us an email and put in the subject line a podcast question and then put your question in the the writing field, I guess. And then after that, we'll get it and be able to answer it. Or you can direct messages via the social medias. Facebook and Instagram, our handles are GroveCH. You can DM us there, put up, say it's a podcast question at hand, fire away, and we will take time as much as we can to answer those questions. So make sure to do that. All right. Well, this week we are jumping. I mean, I don't. I didn't look at your readings there, but this week I'm just in John and Luke. So I'm just, you know. Why do you get just vibe in no, the two? I'm in Luke for a, a big chunk and then John and then a short little synoptic synapsis of a couple different sections. Oh, gotcha. I don't have, yeah, I don't have any synoptic. But these are a lot of readings for today. This week, there's a lot, a lot of story, a lot of readings. That's kind of, we, we've gotten to the gospels in, in one sense, it's, it's awesome to finally get to the gospels. I've missed it. Uh, in the other sense, it's, it's a lot more difficult prep. Going oh my through gosh. The I was like, I, I, listeners, I was complaining before we started recording about how much, how much time it takes me right now to prep. <laughs> Yeah, because it's not normally it takes me this long, but it does take me long because there's so much. But well, and I think it's also important. I apologize for repenting or for complaining. I think it's also important to point out that it's a very the creating a chronological harmony of the Gospels is much more open handed than it is with Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Uh, and notice, I, I didn't say controversial because you can, but you there's a lot more. It's a lot more open-ended where different things that take place in the Gospels could have taken place. You can move them around, and it doesn't actually change the narrative of the story, whereas with Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, it's it's told much more chronologically. With the Gospel writers, they're writing about things that Jesus did, not necessarily even in the order that he did them. They're just writing about, oh, yeah, and then this happened, and then this happened, that sort of thing. So, But it's it's good. I, I like being able to work through it this way. It's It's been a fun, different experience of reading the totally, Gospels. Totally. I'm all about it. All right, so jumping into John chapter 8, verses 21 through 59. Uh, last week, we ended up on a bit, we ended off on a bit of a cliffhanger. So Ooh, we're actually going to pick up right where Jesus left off mid-speech. Uh, Jesus, who this guy, he just loves being cryptic sometimes. <laughs> Jesus, until we get later on when he actually starts to reveal who he is, uh, he likes to just kind of... Uh, I, don't know, I don't even know what you call he it. He explains it. He explains why he does it. Okay, And then I, I, it's, I always joke about how... When Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to die and three days later rise again. And they're like, what could he mean by that? I used to think, what a bunch of idiots. Look, that's what he said. And then the more, the older I've gotten, the more I've realized, yeah, like if you spent three years with Jesus where he's being cryptic most of the time, it makes absolute total sense that your first instinct would be like, well, what could he be meaning by this? Like, no, no, he's just being straight up now. So it is what it is. So our, our Lord liked to uh, keep it, keep play the cards close to the chest until it got closer. <laughs> So anyway, and hey, you know, who am I to argue? But listen, we're not living in those times. We actually live with the fully enlightened understanding of what Jesus was working to accomplish. That is true. Until Revelation. So Jesus, again, he's being he's being a little cryptic and he's talking to the crowd, telling them that he's going to leave and that they cannot follow where he is going unless they believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They will die in their sins. So that's an important thing to say. And then we get this interesting exchange. This is starting in verse 31. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, that, and you do what you have heard from your father. So yeah, kind of, kind of really interesting thing there. He's essentially talking about, I, I love that I, I put in my Bible when they say we are offsprings of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. I was like, well, that's a bit of a stretch. Don't you think? Cause there, there's a lot of Jewish history where they spend time enslaved to other nations. It's, True. it's not exactly a, uh, from Abraham to the present day is not exactly a history of the, the Jewish people getting to live free all the time. So a little bit of an interesting, uh, uh, a little bit of an interesting thing said by the Pharisees there. The other one, though, I think is, is really interesting because he says it's not just about the actual political enslavement that the Israelites would have been familiar with. It, it's also just about the enslavement to sin that the people are going through. And this is kind of the big thing that gets missed with the Pharisees and with Jesus, the fact that they are expecting – and I shouldn't say just the Pharisees. Most of Israel at this point is expecting a physical savior. And when I say that, I mean someone who saves – the physical nation of Israel from the physical evil of Rome and does it that way. Whereas Jesus is a spiritual savior. He's a physical man. He's, he's God in the flesh, but he, he walked among us. So I'm not saying he was spirit or anything like that, but his mission was spirit. The kingdom of God was spirit. So, so really interesting thing there. Uh, after the statement, Jesus makes an even more controversial one, calling them not sons of Abraham, but sons of the devil. And his evidence for this is that if they were truly sons of Abraham, they would do what Abraham did, which is follow the word of God. Uh, which I actually, I love this idea, right? He's saying, if you were sons of Abraham, you know what Abraham did? He listened to God when God spoke to them. Why aren't you doing that? And so the Pharisees, as you can imagine, they were pretty peeved about this exchange. And so they accused Jesus of being a Samaritan, like, whoa, whoa jerks. Uh, it is kind of, yeah, it is kind of like a bummer. What are you going to do? Uh, they accuse him of being a Samaritan or having a demon. Jesus reiterates that if they believe in him, they will not see death. As the conversation goes on, they say that Jesus is not even 50 years old and yet he claims to know Abraham. So he's like, how can you claim to know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And we're told in the next verse, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So this is this is one of the times where Jesus is not being cryptic anymore, right? I mean, it's still a little bit cryptic, but he's essentially saying, I'm God. Like in that moment, what he's saying is, before Abraham existed, I am. He's purposely using the exact same way that you, the, the name of Yahweh, remember, is I am. That's when when God tells Moses, tell them I am has sent you. He's telling them his name in that in that moment there. And he's, he's saying that before Abraham was, he was there. So that's, he's clearly claiming to not be a man at this point. And so the Pharisees grab stones. They want to stone him for being a heretic, for committing blasphemy. But Jesus, you know, he, he, he Jesus is in charge, right? God's in charge. It's his plan. And so he's not going to die until it's time. So he is, he's able to avoid that. Jumping over to Luke. We see Jesus send out another group of disciples. This time, it's a group of 72. I've, I've said this a few times, but it's an important thing for us to keep in mind. We often think of Jesus as traveling around and he's got his 12 bros with them and that's it. No, Jesus had a group of disciples that was larger than that. He had a larger crowd of people that were traveling with him. The 12 were just a set apart group of disciples from that crowd. 
this is a, the 72, which is also a set apart number from that larger crowd as well. So Jesus is kind of numbering the people together. And you could even say within the 12, there's a special group of three of Peter, James, and John who get to be with Jesus. The transfiguration that we talked about, was that last week or the week before? I don't remember, but- uh, It was last week. Last week, yeah. So last week during the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are the ones that get to be there for it. So there is that kind of even more special group of disciples there. Uh, so they have a very similar, there's a group of 72. They have a very similar mission to what Jesus gave the 12. And they are to declare that, they are to declare that the kingdom of God is at hand and perform miracles. Jesus then pronounces some more woes among the cities who do not receive his disciples. So very similar to when he sends out the 12. Uh, Upon the return of the 72, they remark that even the demons are subject to the name of Jesus. And then Jesus gives them this warning, which I think is really interesting. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that these spirits, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Uh, Or in other words, Jesus saying, yes, I've given you great power, essentially, right? Like you're able to do works in my name, but don't rejoice in the fact that you're able to do these works. Rejoice in the fact that you're saved which I think is a good reminder. Aaron and I are both in a more uh, charismatic tradition when it comes to, when it comes to what we believe and kind of the denominations that we're, that we're in. And so I think it's a good reminder for us as well. It's a good reminder for Pentecostals and and charismatics. I think sometimes we can get very focused on uh, the signs and the wonders and the things that we get to do here in, in this life and, and not, and we can almost take for granted just the idea that the greatest gift of God is salvation. That's, that's like the number one thing. I think sometimes we can get caught up in the other things. So I think it's a great reminder that Jesus gives us here. Uh, continuing on, Jesus reminds his disciples how lucky they are to get to see what they're seeing. The prophets and kings of old would have killed to be in their shoes. That's not literally what Jesus says, but it's kind of my paraphrase of it, that the prophets and the kings of old would have absolutely loved to be where the disciples are at yep. right now. And Jesus is trying to give them that perspective. I, I, you can imagine Jeremiah being in heaven after he had to get carried away to Egypt in the fall of Jerusalem and just being like, are you kidding me, Peter? Like you, you have it made, bro. <laughs> I would, I would kill for this role that you That's have. Awesome. Uh, the next passage is the parable of the good Samaritan where Jesus subverts the expectations of a proud lawyer. This is one of those ones that we, a pro, most of us probably know if we grew up in church, but a lawyer goes to Jesus and he wants to impress him. And he says, you know, what is, you know, what are the, what's the law? And Jesus is like, love the Lord, your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's like, Hey, I've done all that, but who's my neighbor. And then he's kind of like trying, you know, just basically say like, Hey, I've shown love to all the Israelites. And then Jesus tells the story Let of, me tell you story. Exactly. Of an Israelite man who is traveling on the road to Jericho. He is robbed by some muggers and then, He's left for dead by the side of the road. A priest walks by, but doesn't want to help him because he's unclean. A Levite walks by, doesn't want to help him for the same reason. And then a Samaritan walks by. And remember, the Jews hate the Samaritans at this point. And the Samaritans are living in northern Israel. And essentially, they're a mixed race, Jewish and other. um, I think it's mostly Assyrian, but I think other races as well. And so they view them as kind of it's a a racist thing. They they view them as basically half-breeds. So not, not great. But the Samaritan man is the one who helps the Jewish man, and he takes him. He takes him into town, makes sure that he's provided for. And Jesus asked him, "Who was who was the man's neighbor in that moment? Who had mercy on him? Uh, or sorry, yeah, who is the who is the man's neighbor?" And the lawyer goes, "The one who showed him mercy." And you got Jesus kind of being like, "Yeah, exactly," you know. And his point there is that, and this is the thing that Jesus is having to hammer home. And I, and I understand, you know, to give some grace to the Israelites at this point, most of their faith for the longest time has been about Israel. 
uh, it, it, they've been told, be kind to people who are so, sojourning in your land, be, be just to them and all those different things. But most of the law has been about how you're treating fellow Israelites for the, for the most part. And so Jesus, the new covenant is a radical break with this. The new covenant is saying that this is going to be not just for Israel. This is that the salvation of God, and I, 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 I should be careful when I say that. The salvation of God was not just for Israel under the old covenant because we have people who aren't Israelites who are Yahweh worshipers and clearly covered in that covenant. So I, sh- I should say um, God is using more people in under the new covenant who are non-Israelites than before. And he's opening up his grace and he's opening up his truth to more people than the old covenant would have allowed for, I guess is the way I'll say it. Uh, we then meet Mary and Martha. Jesus very Jesus visits, and then Martha makes some preparations. But Mary sits at Jesus' feet. Another story that's very famous if you grew up in Sunday school. But he goes to visit this house. There's two sisters, Mary and Martha. Their brother's name is Lazarus, and who will come up later. <laughs> but Martha is, you know, she's busy. She wants to make sure everything is just right for Jesus. Mary just sits down. She wants to listen to what he has to say. Uh, when Martha gets mad <clears throat> at Mary for what she's doing, Jesus tells her that, hey, hey. Mary's choosing the right thing right now. And so it's kind of just a reminder for us to, hey, in the midst of busy, in the busyness of life, listen to what Jesus has to say. We then see Jesus reiterate the Lord's Prayer. Interestingly, Jesus either trims it down when he's telling – and yeah, he this isn't necessarily saying that it's the first time he said it. He might be trimming it down or Luke might have omitted some sections. But I just wrote it down because it feels really – it feels really off to say it this way. I don't know if it'll like – if it just like feels weird to say it, but – the Lord's Prayer, as recorded in Luke, is, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. So there's kind of a lot of a lot of the first Lord's Prayer that we read in Matthew is parallelism, or at least it's, yeah, it, it, that is the way to describe it. It's like when you read Old Testament poetry, there's the parallels that you see, and Luke omits most of them. Notably, though, he does not omit, and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Or in other words, the idea of the the idea that we forgive sin because God forgives us is still present in this version's version of the Lord's prayer as well. Uh, after this, Jesus compares the father's desire to give good things to his children to the desire of any father to do the same. Uh, for me, I just put this hits home differently because obviously now I have a son this year for the first time going through as we've gone through the Bible reading plan. And Wait, so, what? I know. His name is Joel. He's awesome. No way. I'm just kidding. Um, but like, yeah, like you get emotional. Like you look at your kid and you're like, wow, I really want what's best for you and I'll do whatever, I'll do whatever it takes. It's just kind of like those standard father things that you think. So when Jesus says, you know, like what father when his son asked for a good gift would give him a serpent? It's like, of course you wouldn't. And like, yeah. you, you just think about how, yeah, like the, the there, there's a new thing, I guess, that's been unlocked in my heart. Me and Ashley were joking about yesterday how we watched, um, we watched Home Alone and like we both just cried at the end of like the parents like being reunited with their kid and stuff like that, and it's like I guess we're just I guess this is just our wait. Lives did you now. legit cry? Like what do you mean by legit? Like, like wh- tears actually? Like one tear? Like not like? So you cried? For yeah, yeah, yeah. You cried. didn't tear up. You cried. Uh, yeah. I mean, somewhere in the middle. Listen, it, if a tear drops, it means you cried. There you go. I cried. Yeah. You may it not was- have blubbery cried or like actual like weepy cried, but you yeah, definitely cried. Yeah, we definitely both did that, and so it was just one of those things where it's like, oh wow, this really hits differently, and so. In, in, in the same way, like Jesus comparing the love that the father has for us to the love that a father had, like a, a, a earthly father has for their children. It's like, oh, I get that now. Like, and, and I've only been a dad for like a few months. So it's just one of those things where it's like some new, some new part of me has been unlocked in there. So I, I get, I get the idea. 
Um, so we fast forward to Jesus casting out a demon and some there accused him of casting out demons by the name of Beelzebul, which appears to be another name for Satan. Uh, Jesus points out that this is really stupid. <laughs> so like he, <laughs> he just doesn't really, he doesn't really mince words. They're just like, yeah, you're casting out demons by the name of the devil. And he's like, what are you talking about, dude? He's, and he, the example he uses, a house divided amongst itself cannot stand. So he's saying, why would, why would demons be casting out demons? It's not the way that that would work. So good, good. Good on you. Way to use logic there. Uh, and then he warns that – this is really interesting. He warns that if a demon is cast out, it can return. So be on your guard. So the idea is like yep. even those who have – yeah, you, you, those who are oppressed or possessed by uh, demonic spirits is saying it's not like it gets cast out and that's just the end. Like you need to be on your guard. Renew your mind. Have your defenses up. Otherwise, like it can come back again. So – and it's kind of – it just makes me hope that all of the demons that Jesus cast out, that those people took that advice and were like that. So I like this they were. Uh, he then reminds the people uh, that those who hear the word of the Lord and keep it shall be blessed. Uh, he talks about the sign of Jonah. We talked about that last week, so I'm not going to go through that again. But he talks about how the only sign that will be given to this generation is the sign of Jonah. Essentially, this idea that pro- probably what it's referring to is how Jonah was in the belly of the sea creature for three days and then was assigned to the Ninevites. Jesus will be in the grave for three days and then is assigned to the uh, Israelites. Uh, and then Jesus tells the people that they must share the good news of his ministry using this analogy. This is in Luke eleven thirty three. says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see it. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when the lamp, as uh, sorry, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So the idea here is like, don't let any part of you be corrupted. Like be, be willing to share the gospel, really to be willing to show this to other people. Because if you have, if you're, if you're living in darkness and you have a light, you want to share that light. You don't just want to keep it all to yourself. You, you know, this little light of yours, let it shine. Don't hide it under a bushel. No. no. So some of you have no idea what that reference was. But <laughs> it's, it's a song as a kid, this little light of mine. Yeah. I'm going to let it shine. But if you didn't grow up in church or if you grew up in church, like within the last maybe couple of decades, that, that song probably wasn't in there either. So there you go. Uh, the rest of chapter 11 involves some rebuking of the Pharisees. Jesus talks about how they love the places of honor and yet lead people astray uh, and how their extra biblical traditions have become a stumbling block to the people. Luke adds that they lied in wait for Jesus trying to catch him in a verbal trap. So you'll no- you'll notice that the big conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus is that they hold their traditions and doctrine with the same weight that they hold written scripture. And so it's not so Jesus is Jesus is arriving and he's showing how some aspects of the law and and of the old covenant have been misinterpreted and how we need to they the the Israelites need to rethink how they view those things. The Pharisees essentially are one, they flatly will refuse to do that. I shouldn't say blanketly because there are some Pharisees who follow Jesus. So when, when usually when the gospel writers say the Pharisees, they mean the Pharisees who were against Jesus at this point. They refuse to do it. It's, it's the extra biblical traditions that they have and they're putting the same weight that they have on scripture. And so that's why you'll see the conflict is almost always on the Sabbath because that's the big one that Jesus is going after about how, like when I instituted the Sabbath, I wasn't saying sit by yourself and do nothing. I Like you can obviously go do some things and help people. It's a, it's a day of reflection and rest. So kind of interesting. 
Jesus then tells the crowds, do not be anxious about this life. Oh, sorry. I skipped a thing in my uh, my notes. Uh, We jump into chapter 12 and he tells the crowd to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So this is very similar to what rumor Jesus tells his disciples this in the boat. And they start grumbling about how they're hungry. And Jesus goes after him. He's like, guys, what you're missing, you're missing it right now. We're, we're talking about this. So you can see that Jesus, some of the stuff that he's telling his disciples, he also shares it with the crowds. It's not something that's just said to the disciples. Uh, and then Jesus then tells the crowd to not be anxious about this life, but to stress the importance of the life to come, giving this famous statement. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who killed the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So essentially, it's first, he says, hey, focus on... You should, you should fear that... You should fear those who can... Uh, who can Sorry, <laughs> who can cast you into hell? Which would be God? I, let's. I full disclosure. I'm I'm sick right now, so like I'm get, I'm getting over it. So my mind's a little bit not to make excuses, but I'm making an excuse. My mind's just a little bit everywhere. <laughs> so right jeez. Um. So yeah, but Jesus is talking. Yeah, fear fear God. Like we should fear God more than we should fear man. And then when it comes to being anxious, he's saying you can buy a sparrow for two pennies, or five. You can buy five sparrows for two pennies, which means they're an incredibly cheap thing that you can buy. And he says, and yet God knows each and every one of the sparrows, and he and he, he he takes care of them. And the same way, we are much more valuable than a sparrow. God knows the number of hairs on our head. And so it's a reminder to not be anxious when we go through life and we think like, God, how is this going to happen? It's a reminder that God has not forgotten us. If God knows the sparrows, God knows us. Uh, We then see Jesus remind the people to acknowledge him before men, which is always an important thing. Jesus then tells the parable of the rich fool, which reminds us to store up treasure in heaven. This is the guy who essentially just buys up a bunch of stuff and he sits down and he's like, oh, I'm so awesome and my life is great. And then that night he dies. And so Jesus makes the point of, hey, it doesn't matter how much you store up here on earth, you're not taking it with you. So store up treasure in heaven. Uh, the next section is a repeat of Jesus' sermon to not be anxious, but to trust God. He further applies it by telling the people to sell their possessions and to give to the poor. As Christians, we are called to be selfless with our money. Uh, and I think sometimes <clears throat> as the American church, we forget that a little bit, that we are called by God to be radically generous or rationally generous is the way that our church would say it. Uh, we are also called to be ready for Christ's return. And as the next section reminds us, when the master returns, he should find his servant. He should find his servants ready and waiting. And so he talks about how a master goes away for a time and he comes back. If he finds the servants are you know hard at work and they're being diligent and they're keeping watch, great. Good job, boys. Uh, if he comes back and he finds them asleep and not doing anything, it talks about many whippings. So basically you get the picture of the master just like going through with a rod and just kind of like beating them. Like, what are you doing? So that's God's picture of, hey, when Christ returns, he should find us working for the kingdom, not just lounging around and doing nothing. So always a convicting thought, that one. Uh, Jesus reminds the people that his message will bring division and that there are people who just don't want to hear it. And I think it's it's an important thing for us to remind for us to remember is that the gospel is offensive, and it offends people of all times, of all of all people groups of all times. There's something offensive about the gospel, and so as we share the gospel, obviously we believe that it's the hope of the world. But Jesus is making it very clear: not everyone's going to hear it, and so you need to be ready to accept that as well. 
Uh, Jesus then repeats the rebuke against those who want to interpret the weather, but can't see that the time has arrived. So remember last week, Jesus talking about the Pharisees, like, Hey, when it's a red sky, you talk about how the weather's going to be bad, but you're asking for a sign when I'm out here doing miracles, like read, read the room, bros. Uh, he didn't say bros, but <laughs> he actually coined the phrase bros. Come on, bro. So, but yeah, the, the reality is basically Jesus is saying, we have all these different interpretations for all these different things. And yet you can't see what I'm doing right now is clearly heralding in something new. Uh, he encourages the people to sell to the disputes before they go to a judge. So essentially, hey, when you're getting sued, just work it out. Like you don't need to go to the judge for all those things. We'll see Paul actually hash that out. I forgot what letter it's in, but one of his letters about Christian living is essentially, hey, don't sue each other. Just work it out within the church. Uh, he reminds the people that they must repent or perish. And he uses the metaphor of a fig tree that gets one more chance to bear fruit. And this one, there's a master or the, the master of a vineyard is upset because there's a fig tree that's had three years to bear fruit and it hasn't yet. And the servant convinces him, hey, let me just dig around it, pump it with manure. Like, let me, let's give it one more year. The idea here is probably that this is Israel who has been given chance after chance to kind of see what's going on. This is the big one. And so many of the people are missing it, unfortunately. Uh, then while at a synagogue, Jesus heals a woman. And then this goes down. Uh, off, I, He's at the synagogue, so it's the Sabbath day. Because Jesus only heals people on the Sabbath. That's not actually true. But that's what it seems like with the gospels. It's true, right? He just that's likes what it feels to. Like. He just likes to get the Pharisees all riled up. Uh, so this is Luke chapter thirteen, verses fourteen through seventeen. It says, "But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, "There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on these those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day." Then Jesus answered him, you hypocrites, do, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead, a, lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed on this bond, uh, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, his adversaries were put to shame and all of the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So essentially his point there is on the Sabbath your animals need to drink or they're going to die. So even on the Sabbath, you'll untie your ox or your donkey and you'll lead them to the water and you'll let them drink and then bring them back. So that's work. It, the understanding is that, yeah, it's, it's, it's important for these things to die. It's sorry. It's important for these things to get life and not die is the point. I think he is sick guys. And so it kind of, I don't know my mind, uh, but it, it goes back to that sparrow point, right? Are we not more valuable than the sparrows? What Jesus is saying here is, are we not more value? Are you not more valuable than the donkeys? Are you not more valuable than those things? Oh man. The I final mean, obvious answer is yes. We are more valuable than that. Yeah, we are. The final thing that Jesus says in this section are the parables of the mustard seed and leaven. And so this is Luke 13, 18 through 20. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of, of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? So there you go. Just And sorry, the, the second one there is leaven, where a woman adds to it, and eventually it bakes bread. So it's small things that grow into a bigger thing, is what Jesus is getting at. Uh, jumping over to John, we see that uh, Jesus heals a blind man and a bunch of drama comes out of it because of course it does. Notably, the disciples asked Jesus what sin this man committed to be born blind. So remember, there, I forgot what miracle it was, but there was a guy who seemingly had committed sin to be, uh, he was a lame man, I believe, if, I, if I'm remembering a couple weeks ago correctly. Uh, and so he, Jesus forgives his sin and then heals the man. In this case, Jesus tells them there was none, that he was born blind for the glory of God, that this man had been born blind so that he could be healed and glorify God. 
Jesus then puts mud and saliva on the man's eyes and tells him to wash in the pool of Siloam. Uh, after he does this, the man can see. People don't believe it. Uh, so he comes back out, he can see, and everyone's like, isn't that the guy who is, who's been blind his whole life? And some of the people are like, no, 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 it just looks like him. But obviously that can't be the guy. Uh, but he keeps telling them, I am the man. So he is brought before the, Pharise- the Pharisees. And I love this exchange. This is verse 16. It says, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. They're talking about Jesus there. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So some of the Pharisees are like, well, Jesus is doing stuff on the Sabbath. Because again, Jesus is just healing on the Sabbath all the time. And they say he's not from God if he's violating the Sabbath in this way. And the other people are like, if he's not from God, how is he doing these things? Like, how is he doing these things this miraculous? After this, the Pharisees interview the man's parents, and they are scared to answer. Uh, they know that they will be thrown out of the synagogue if they confess Christ. So when they're told, when they're told, "Hey, is this your son who was born blind, who was then healed?" and they, their reply is literally, "He's of age. Ask him." <laughs> so, uh, come on, parents. The Pharisees then lay into the guy even more, and for his part, he won't back down. And so, I love this is. 10 verses I'm going to read, but I love this exchange because the guy really shows his bravery in this moment. Uh, This is John chapter nine, verses 24 through 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man talking about Jesus is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Only one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. I love that line. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. I mean, kudos to this guy. He's one yeah, of the, he's Very one of true. the unheralded heroes of the Bible where he just, he just stands his ground. He's like, no, I'm not going to let, like he healed me. He, he, it reminds me of almost the, um, the Polycarp story where he stands in the face of the lions and he says, how am I supposed to deny God right now? He's been faithful to me my whole life. It's this guy as he's facing being thrown out of the synagogue. He's like, how am I supposed to deny Christ? The guy freaking healed me. Um, he didn't say freaking, but. He coined that phrase too. There you go. Uh, no, it's just great. I also think it's really interesting at the end. Notice what they say. They say, you were born in utter sin and you were teach us. So in other words, in the Pharisees paradigm, it had to have been sin is the reason that he was born blind. Whereas Jesus tells us that that's not the case. So this guy is thrown out of the synagogue. Uh, after Jesus hears about this, he seeks the man out and he reveals himself to be the Messiah. So basically he, he kind of gives them the guy a really full picture of who he is. Uh, the formerly blind man then worships Jesus in that moment. Jesus declares that he has come so that the blind can see and that the seeing will be blind. So he kind of gives that little cryptic statement. Ooh, interesting. Some Pharisees nearby over here, and they ask if they're blind. They're basically, are you calling us blind? And Jesus replies that if they were blind, they'd have no guilt. But since they've seen the truth and rejected it, their guilt remains, which is, that's a whole, ooh. In other words, yeah, you're blind. Harsh. Well, in, in some ways, it's like, it's kind of a weird double meaning because it's like, yes, you are blind, but also in a much more real sense, no, because you've seen the truth and you've rejected it. So it's worse than being blind to the truth. So, oh, the Pharisees. 
Moving lovers, on. lovers of money. It's, well, what are you going to do? Uh, to moving on to chapter 10. I keep saying, I keep saying the Pharisees. I sh- it should be clear. It's like, it's not all the Pharisees. Cause like Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea is a Pharisee. And then we'll see Jesus is about to go, um, eat dinner with the Pharisees. So there are, it's, it's weird. Like sometimes in the gospels, when it says the Pharisees, it's specific, like I said, specifically talking about the group that is ob- objecting to Jesus, which in fairness is the majority of Pharisees, but it's not like a blanket, every single one of them type thing. Uh, moving on to chapter 10, Jesus continues his conversation with these Pharisees by saying that he is a good shepherd. A few highlights from this speech. Uh, this is it's just a really good speech by Jesus, but verses two through three says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens the sheep, hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. What Jesus is saying is that the she- his sheep are going to recognize him. They'll hear his voice. Uh, verses 10 through 11, it says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. What's interesting about those verses is growing up, I always heard the thief is the devil, but it's actually talking about false teachers or it's talking about false shepherds is kind of the idea. So I, I don't know. And like, this is maybe just where I grew up and like what I grew up hearing and stuff like that. But yeah, but, and I think they took it to like the extreme where, where would they get the idea to steal, kill and destroy from the great deceiver. So yeah, that's it, fair. It kind of connects that in some respects, but it is about false teachings. But he also, Jesus does call the false teachers demons themselves. Like, yeah. So yeah, I'm not, it's not necessarily like a- The co- devil themselves, you brood of vipers. Like, Yeah. It's not one of those things where it's like, you, you can definitely apply it that yeah, way. Yeah, totally. But in the context of the verse, it is actually talking about- Yeah. Who's he actually referring to? Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, verse 16, it says, and I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd- this is pretty clear to the Gentiles, right? So even we talked about last week how there's a moment where Jesus says, hey, it's not yet time for the Gentiles. Even to this week when he sent out the 72, he reminds them to not go to Gentile cities. This is for Israel right now. It's a reminder that Jesus, that's not the plan forever. And even here, Jesus is making clear that there's going to be uh, more sheep added to the flock. There was again division among the, oh, sorry, the last section is verses 19 to 21. It says, there's again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So again, there's just so much drama that's coming out of this one miracle. But it's a really important thing to say because there's there's kind of the tradition of what what uh, what we think Jesus is because of what he's doing. And the other people saying, like, God is clearly blessing his ministry right now. What are we supposed to do with this knowledge? Uh, and then finally wrapping up this portion of John for now, uh, we go to another scene where Jesus is in Jerusalem. After reiterating his metaphor of the shepherd and his sheep, Jesus straight up says that he and the father are one. Uh, so basically he's saying, I'm God <laughs> in that moment. Uh, the Pharisees want to see him arrested and Jesus leaves across the Jordan for a time. And he talks about how it's not right for a prophet to die away from Jerusalem. And so he's getting away for now because he knows that is going to be what's going to happen, but it's not time yet. So Well, even that. in that statement, it's harsh too, because what he's saying is like, Jerusalem is where prophets come to die. Like it is yeah, such a very true. difficult, like, and even like the Pharisees in in the religious leaders in this moment, like they heard Jesus say this, like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Like, this is the city of God. This is where this is where God shows up. Like, and so it is, like, it is a very blatantly uh s- difficult statement that Jesus makes to these leaders as well. So Jesus is not trying to mend any fences here. He's just being honest, being truthful. And it goes back to what he even started. I think you started the section off of the idea of I didn't come to bring peace, but division. Like there's a reality. I'm, I'm, I'm separating the sheep from the goats. And, and we see this whole thing play out as we understand Jesus coming to the end of his life. There is that tension that plays out. There you go. 
Well, we're going to jump over to Luke for my last little bit today, and then Aaron's going to take over. Uh, we finish up in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is now journeying around towns and villages, and he's dropping little nuggets of wisdom, including, the, I like this one, in 23 through 24. It says, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be a few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So essentially, keep on the straight and narrow, boys. Uh, as he continues on after this, Jesus laments the state of Jerusalem, kind of like what you were just talking about. And this is the famous verse where he says, oh, how I would have gathered you together like a hen gathers her chicks. Um, but instead, Jerusalem, the city that should have accepted Jesus, rejects him. Mm-hmm. Just like Jerusalem, the city that should have accepted the prophets, rejected them, uh, except for Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. <laughs> but the Ooh. rest of them, they don't get They, they don't were get minor accepted. prophets. Yes. Yeah, just kidding. Uh, Jesus then goes to dine with a Pharisee on the Sabbath. On the way, he heals a man on the Sabbath. Surprise. And then the Pharisees have a problem with that. Also surprise. <laughs> so it just, this just happens all the time. Uh, Jesus points out the hypocrisy of the men saying that if one of their sons fell into a well on the Sabbath, of course, they'd pull them out. I also love that Jesus uses different examples every time. So it's not just like the one thing that he's going back to. He just lists a bunch of things that people would do on the Sabbath. And like, yeah, if your kid fell in a well on the Sabbath, you wouldn't be like, ah, shoot. Well, Tread water, son. I'll be back for you. To, I'll be back for you by sunrise. Like, no, you would go rescue your son because obviously in that moment, the value of your son's life is important. And he's saying in this moment, the value of this person is the 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 this person being set free, this person being healed, is the most important thing. So, yeah. really cool moment there. He continues on by telling two parables. The first is a reminder to live uh, live in humility. Jesus brings up the example of going to a feast and purposely sitting in a low place because it's better to be brought up than sent down. So in the, in the story, he talks about how if your friend is throwing a feast and you sit at the place of honor, and what if someone basically in a higher sta- status than you shows up, your friend would be like, hey, can you move down? And that's a humiliating thing to have to move away. He's like, But if you sit at the low end of the table, you'll be brought up <laughs> because you're like, hey, whoa, 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 get over here. You know, you get the Aragorn, my friends, you about to no one moment. Um, I haven't referenced Lord of the Rings in a long time. So. I know it's been a minute. Yeah, it's, I just got to bring that up. Uh, and so it's a reminder for us though, Jesus says that those who are proud will be humbled and those who are humble will be exalted. So in other words, as Christians, we're called to live in humility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second parable is of a man who holds a feast. He invites his friends, but then his friends all reject the invitation. So the man instead invites the poor and the destitute and they get to attend the attend the banquet instead. Uh, I feel like this is referring to the Gentiles as well, where Jesus is out there proclaiming the gospel. A bunch of the Israelites are not listening. And so if the ones who don't, he's like, all right, fine, whatever. And then it goes out, the message goes out to the Gentiles. And we see in, if we just open up a history book, the, the Gentile message is what kind of just gets shot out of a cannon because you see the Greek cities begin to turn, Roman cities begin to turn, and all of a sudden Christianity kind of just gets it, – it, it picks up terminal velocity, if you will. It just kind of keeps rolling from there. So great points. Well, before Aaron takes over, he's going to continue in Luke chapter 14. But we do want to take a moment to remind you to leave us a five-star review, uh, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are kind of the two big ones that help us out. But it just helps get the podcast out there to more people. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do, we will read it on the air, just like we're doing for... Anna, I don't even know how to ha- read this handle. Anna Mja. You almost said handwriting, but this is typed out. Ham- I don't know. Did uh, I say handwriting? I, you almost did, I think. Oh, I did almost say it. The, I can't, but it's A-N-A-M-J-A-23. Sure. 
Uh, so thank you for the, the five-star review. She says this. He says, I think it's a she because Anna. Anyways, I found this podcast at the beginning of my college semester, and this has been super beneficial in helping me understand the Old Testament readings assigned in my religious studies class. I appreciate the dedication you guys put into the podcast. So thank you for that review. Thank you for that five-star. Also, I would say this. Maybe you're not on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Still give us a five-star if you're willing to because it will help grow the community within those podcast platforms too. So you're more than welcome to do that as well if you don't, for whatever reason, subscribe via those two main ones. Um, as Evan said, we're, I'm jumping in now. We're going to continue reading in Luke uh, chapter 14, 25 to 35. We uh, hear where Jesus shifts into this discussion about what it will cost us to follow Jesus. Uh, and it says this, it says, verse 25, now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And here's the deal. He's not saying you get the free passage to hate. What he's saying is if you prefer anybody or anything above your devotion to me, you're not fit to be my follower. And that's a big statement. And Jesus is drawing a very, even as we've seen through Evan's portion Jesus was drawing a very clear line in the sand saying, this is what it's going to take to follow me. Uh, he continues on and says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, and this is why he says, and I love that he has an explanation of two quick little parables, two quick little analogies. He says, which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. He doesn't stop there. He continues, or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while they are, the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. No salt. Now salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who is ears hear to listen. Here's the challenge. I think and what he's saying here is he's just drawing a very clear line, but he's also saying, count the cost. Like what, what I'm asking of you is not something you just dive into blindly, but you've got to understand what I'm going to ask you to do to be my disciple is to follow the same path I've called you or that I myself am walking down. I'm asking you to lay your life down, to reject every other relationship and reject every other uh, person you have is the primary devotion and put me above all of them. And so it's not saying hate them and be angry at them and don't love them. He's saying, love me more than you love those other people. And this is what he is saying. And then he's talking about counting the cost between the two. Uh, we shift into Luke chapter 15, where we get three parables, uh, parables, not parables, parables about the joy of someone repenting and turning to God. We get the first parable, which is the parable of the lost sheep, where it's the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, loses one and says, Isn't, wouldn't he leave the 99 to go find the one? And then once he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and calls his family and friends together saying, rejoice with me uh, because I found my lost sheep. And then Jesus makes this, this declaration in this first portion of the parable. He says this, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who do not need repentance. Uh, then he shifts into the, the lost coin parable where a woman has 10 silver coins. She loses one. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house clean, looking for, she tears the house apart, so to speak, looking for this lost coin. Even though she still has nine, 
And then once she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I found the silver coin I lost. And then Jesus makes this statement. He says, I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. And then we get the third parable in Luke chapter 15, which many of us know this as the prodigal son. Uh, and Jesus tells a story to convey a point of, of a man with two sons, the younger of which goes to his father. He asks and demands, in essence, it's a demanding statement. Father, give me what's due mine in the share of the inheritance and the share of the estate. His father does. He divides it up, gives the, the son his portion. A couple of days later, the boy goes off into a distant land and then blows all of his wealth and all of his, his, his money on luxury living, luxurious living and prostitutes, which is a big statement and a big deal. He took, well, and, and let's be clear, his brother makes the accusation that he squandered it on, on prostitutes. There's a very high likelihood that's what he ended up doing. But again, this is a parable, so we'll hold that loosely. Uh, it says, then he looks for a citizen of the foreign land to work for. He ends up getting sent to, into the country to feed a pig farmer, to feed the pigs, uh, which as a side note, remember, pigs were at this point unclean animals to Jews. So he is in the lowest of lows being stuck among the things that are unclean and feeding them. And it says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods of the pigs. And so because it was unclean, he was more hesitant and resistant to doing so. So the, in essence, the guy's starving and he's poor. And then he came to this revelation of, wait a minute, my father's servants are treated better. I should go repent to my father and ask to be a servant because I've squandered everything. Uh, and so he loses, in essence, because he squandered everything, he loses every bit of his wealth, his family connection, his identity. And so then he goes home with this plan in mind just to, at the very least, not wither or waste away and die. But then we get this, Luke chapter 15, 20 to 31 says this. So he got up, went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. He ran, referring to the father, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told the servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with the feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Really quick, what's going on in this portion of the story is there's a couple things culturally that are that are pretty eye-opening. One, the head of a household would never run. He always walks, and he always walks at the pace he wants to walk because he has the authority, especially a rich man. And this man was rich. This father was rich. So the simple fact that his father ran to his son shows a lack of concern for his status, but a rejoicing and an excitement to see his son return. The other side of it too, is like the implication that the father was actively looking and waiting for his son to return. That's a significant deal too, because the father has other affairs to take care of, but he was compelled to anticipate and look for the return of his son. So those things are playing out. And then when he says, quick, bring the best robe for him, his son would have come in raggedy clothes. His son left in wealthy, rich clothes. He came home in raggedy clothes, and the father clothed him and then put a ring on his finger. Now, the ring carried oftentimes a family seal. So in, es in essence, the son most likely would have pawned off his ring just to get by and just to continue to live his luxurious lifestyle and to not starve. And so not only is he clothed and accepted and put and comforted with the clothes, he's also given back a signet ring that re-identifies as a family member, he puts sandals on his feet so that he's no longer poor and impoverished. And then it says, then bring the fat and calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with the feast. 
Now, there was always a, f- a calf that they would save and set aside that they would just be feeding to fatten up. Why? Because the moment a guest of honor or someone would arrive, they would bring the fattened calf in and kill the calf and throw a big old massive party in the guest's honor. So what the father did here is the very son who, re- who rejected him demanded of his estate and took his wealth and squandered it. The same father who, di- who, who the son sinned against is anticipating his return deny like rejects the 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 right as a father to walk into great and, and to, in essence to not run because it was considered dishonorable because then you're going to be hot and sweaty because it's a hot place to live in you see this massive cultural shift from a father who is so excited to see his dad the other layer to this conversation is in in middle eastern culture there would have been there could have been a moment like this where, G, where the, the father drew a line. He gathered the town around him. He gathered all of his servants. He, and he drew a line. And he, he could, with the son on one side, say, you have no belonging here. You don't belong here anymore. You are not our son. You are not my son. You are not part of this family. You don't belong here. And this line would have been this div- division of be gone, get away from me. The father had every right to do this. But the father didn't do that because he longed for his son. So there's this massive party that the father throws because of the prodigal son's return, which is culturally speaking to the very, it's challenging the very culture uh, of what the Pharisees and the audience is hearing, where they're rejected, where they are removed, where they are kicked out and they are accepted. And this prodigal son who squandered his wealth is accepted back into the family. And then we get this in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours come, came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. And then he continues to say, we had to celebrate. We had to rejoice because this, the, your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and now found. And so it's this incredible cultural tension that Jesus is creating and explaining the story and not just, it, it, it increases in magnitude from a shepherd who finds a sheep, from a woman who finds a silver coin, which again, go back to what we've talked about weeks ago now, but the idea and the elevation of women, where it's a woman who lost coins, she is finding one and celebrating. So even affirming uh, a woman who God created, there's just these dynamics that play culturally. And then it, 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 it comes to its pinnacle, it comes to its, its peak in the story of the prodigal son. And there's this, this, the picture is simply this, the father goes after both sons, the son who squandered his wealth and lived frivolously. And then the son who, who's worked diligently and hard for his father, who didn't want to go in and celebrate the return of his younger brother. And the father is the one standard character in both instances that pursues the sons. And Jesus is painting this picture. The kingdom of God, the rejoicing and, and, and all of a party and all of heaven is those who repent and those who turn. And much like 
us today, like, and this is why, like, when we do baptism Sundays and we do from a practical things as a church, like when we celebrate those who have crossed the line of faith by by accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior and wanting to surrender to Him, it's a party. It's a very big deal. Uh, and this is you see this, you see this play out in the parables that Jesus was talking about, um, and. And the father, he replied to the older son with a loving rebuke. Everything I have is yours. Like there's this tension, like I, everything I have is yours. You want, you want a goat to celebrate with your friends? Have a goat to celebrate with your friends. Enjoy what I have for you. Uh, and so it is this beautiful picture, I think, of the prodigal son. It's probably one of my favorite passages. Um, and, and one of the parables Jesus teaches is just because there's so many things going on nuanced wise that I think is really profound. Uh, we shift out of Luke chapter 15 into Luke chapter 16, which is where we get another parable of a dishonest manager where a rich man has caught wind that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called in the manager and in essence fires him. And the manager says, I won't be able to do labor. What am I supposed to do? I'm too weak to dig. I won't, no one's going to keep him or hire him because he can't sustain digging into hard labor. He's prideful and is, it will have shame if he starts begging. So he then aims to make friends with his master's debtors and begins to reduce their debt. He calls them in, says, how much does my ma- do you owe my master? Hurry, quick, take your invoice, reduce it in half. Okay, brings in another one. Okay, hurry, quick, reduce it. Instead of 100 bushels of wheat, at, say it's only 80. Uh, and then the master actually hears about this and then praises the unrighteous manager. And then Jesus says this in verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 8 through 13. says, the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful with very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is, what is your own? No servant can serve two masters since you will hate the one and love the other, or he will do, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. A couple of things about this passage I think are important because I actually had to stop and kind of dig, dig into this bit because it was a little bit confusing. The children of this age are unbelievers and they typically deal shrewdly with each other and win friends by this means, by their wealth. And then where he contrasts it with the children of light who are believers and Jesus is saying they often fail to use their financial resources to win people to faith who thus become friends forever. In other words, welcome you into our eternal dwellings. So Jesus in this moment is encouraging his followers to use their money shrewdly, but innocently in order to advance God's kingdom. It's, it's such a weird thing to consider, but the idea that Jesus would say, hey, the financial wealth that you have, use it to glorify and extend and, and continue to build the kingdom, advance the kingdom. Are you using the, the financial resources you have to advance the kingdom? That's the question and the tension here. There's another lesson here that is that Jesus teaches, and it's this being faithful with the little you have will allow you to be trusted with more, uh, which we've heard many different things. And also the inverse is true. If you can't be faithful with the little you have, you will not be trusted with more. Um, the Pharisees in this moment, we, we're listening as well. Um, and they, I love that this line it comes in chapter 16 here. It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And in that moment, it draws a rebuke from Jesus. So we read this continued in chapter 16. It draws a rebuke. He then explains that the law and prophets were, in, in essence, they were the primary authority until John. So John was the last prophet, prophetic voice uh, that we find in all of biblical history and all of the biblical accounts. Jesus puts an end to it, but he says, now the good news of the kingdom takes precedence and all are invited. Um, 
And so he, he, he makes this rebuke, challenges the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees who were scoffing. They were lovers of money, so they didn't like what he was saying. Uh, and then he says, hey, all of the law and the prophets are complete in John. Now it's the kingdom, which the gospel takes precedence, uh, and everybody's invited to the table. We then get a section in chapter 16 follow on divorce and adultery, which we'll pick up in a little bit after we, we hear about, uh, we have this parable between rich, a rich man and a Lazarus. Um, at this point, Lazarus, we know as we uh, can look at the Bible from a, not a complete standpoint, but we see the whole canon of scripture. We know that Lazarus is raised from the dead. He has not yet to have been raised from the dead yet, but it's coming. Be ready. Um, but it just compares and contrasts. The rich man feasted, was dressed in purple. He, had, he was wealthy. He was a royalty. And it was contrasted with the poor man named Lazarus in this story, this parable that Jesus is teaching them. Um, and the name here I think is important too, because Lazarus is named, but the rich man is not, which shows an elevation of honor and an elevation of, of authority. Both of them die about the same time. It says that one is brought to Abraham's side, uh, which in Abraham's side, this is uh, the Jewish Talmud will actually use as a reference to a place of blessedness beyond the grave, eternity, heaven. Uh, and then the other one is brought to hell or Hades is what the, the account says. In, in eternity, you see this great reversal. The one who was first in this life will now be last in eternity. In other words, the rich man who was first in the, in, in the world in the worldly life is last in eternity where he's in hell. And then the one who was last in this life, meaning the Lazarus who was poor, is now elevated to first in eternity, meaning he's being he's sitting at the side of Abraham in this passage. Um, it says, the rich man begs Father Abraham to send an angel to report to his brothers to repent. Uh, but Jesus draws a very clear line in the stance in, this, in the story where he says, the truth is, the invitation has already been given. They had the law and the prophets. And if they don't hear the law and the prophets, they won't receive someone coming back from the dead either, i.e. Lazarus, which is a foretelling of what's coming. Uh, and so Jesus has this tension in this conversation and rebuke with the religious leaders to end chapter 16. In chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, we get a small section of Jesus uh, of warnings from Jesus. One is the idea of offenses, which cause sin is the, the idea there. Beware of causing offenses. Um, and the idea is, excuse me, is the that the cause of a disciple to fall, of Christ to fall away brings one offending divine judgment. And so Jesus says, be careful of, of causing offenses. In other words, be careful of causing one of my disciples to fall away, which is where he refers to him as little children, uh, because that's going to bring on judgment onto your own head. And then he says this, be on guard against your brother, uh, rebuke your brother so that he repents of his sin. And every time he repents, you should forgive. That's kind of the, the section of small warnings that we have here. We also see this in chapter 5, verses 10. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. If you have the faith the size of mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say this mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Which one of you having a servant, tending sheep or plowing will stay or say to him, when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. Instead, <coughs> oh, excuse me. Bless uh, you. I didn't. Sneeze, I coughed. I take back uh, my blessing. Thank you. I, wait, what? Just kidding. Uh, it says in verse eight, indeed, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready, serve me while I eat and drink later. You can eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because of what he did was he, what he, because he did what he was commanded in the same way when you have done all that you commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants. We have only done our duty. And this is an interesting kind of statement where Jesus responds to them when they say increase our faith. He says, if you have the faith the size of mustard seed, which we've already read, you go, go back to it's kind of a reiteration of a statement he made at an earlier time in our chronological reading plan. Um, 
But then he kind of teaches them like, do what you're, do what you're told to do. Stop looking for affirmation and a thank you for doing your duty. Um, but do what you're supposed to do and find comfort and solace and affirmation in completing the work that you've been given. So it's kind of a sidebar that we see Jesus having with his disciples here in chapter 17 of chapter Luke or book of Luke. Uh, we then shift into John chapter 11, and this is where we get the account of Lazarus dying. Jesus is told on his way um, back to wake up his friend. So G- Lazarus dies, Jesus gets the, the news then he heads back uh, to see Lazarus, to see him in Bethany, to see Martha, to see Mary. He's on his way back. In verse 16, we get this uh, statement from Thomas called the twin, which is also doubting Thomas that we find later on. And Thomas says this, let's go too so that we may die with him. I was really confused by this statement for a second, um, but then I, I had to reread it and, and reread the section. And in essence, this idea is Jesus is going to Bethany, to Judea area, where the religious leaders are wanting him killed. And for him to say, hey, let's go back to Judea, his disciples are well aware of what the Pharisees are trying to do, what the religious leaders are trying to do. So when he says, I'm going to go back to Bethany and wake up my friend, first off, he's saying Lazarus is not dead, but asleep, referring to an earthly death. The real death is eternal separation, is eternal death, not a physical death. So he's saying Lazarus is asleep, I'm going to wake him up. And Thomas said, hey, he's going back to Judea. Let's go with him so that we may die too. Because Thomas viewed that as a suicide mission. He viewed that there's no way he's coming out of this alive. We're going to go with him. I'm going to have my, my guys back. And if we die, we die. Let's do it. And, and so that's, that's kind of what he means when he says, let's go too so we may die with him. Uh, Jesus arrives just outside the town of Bethany. Martha hears about it. She runs to Jesus. And then she says, if only you were here, Lazarus wouldn't have had to die. We get this perspective where Jesus says to Martha, "Your Lazarus will rise again. And Martha says, yeah, I understand. And, and the, the next life, Lazarus will live in eternity. And so we get this resurrection theology glimpse in Martha's confession of faith that she does believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus then responds and says, I am the resurrection in life, which is one of the I am statements of Jesus. Martha at this point runs to get Mary. Mary finds out that Jesus is there. She runs to find Jesus because Jesus didn't move. I almost have this picture where Jesus talks to Martha, says, I am the resurrection life. She turns, runs home, and Jesus just stands in the same spot and doesn't move until Mary comes. It's not really probably accurate, but it's just what I have going on in my mind. I buy it. He's frozen. Uh, And so then Jesus sees Mary come. Mary confesses the same thing that Martha did, that Lazarus wouldn't have died if Jesus was there. Jesus moved with compassion. This is where you can memorize one of the easiest verses in all the Bible. John eleven thirty five. 35, it says, Jesus wept. And that's the verse. Easy. And I mean, this is like a, just a little bit of an aside, but that's actually the, that's the verse I use when I'm doing memorials. Because as a kid, I knew the verse because you could very easily just say, like, oh, I'm, I know a verse of the Bible. I memorized it. And then you can just say, Jesus wept. Um, but it is an incredibly powerful, I don't, I don't know if I'm stealing your thunder right now. No, you're good. It is an incredibly powerful aside to show that Jesus empathizes with us and yeah. when, when we go through grief. And sometimes we kind of, we can miss it very easily when, when we just kind of like move past it. But that's why I like talking about it at memorials because in the midst of that kind of grief, we can remember that, that Jesus wept when yeah. he went through the same type of grief. There. So true. Yeah. And I remember last time I actually was with a memorial that you were at and like you were helping with and you said the same thing. I thought it was really good. I don't know if I ever thought about it before that way before, but bad sentence, but you know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, Jesus has this moment of compassion. He's 
And remember, he's good friends with these guys. Like, it's not like these are just some random people he heard about. But, like, Lazarus was a friend of his. Um, Lazarus is a friend of mine. Um, Lazarus is my friend. <laughs> uh, but so he's going back to, to bring comfort and to resurrect Lazarus, which is the crazy thing to think about. And so Mary and Martha are, are moved with emotion. They're moved with grief. Jesus has empathy for them and his friends, and he weeps, and then they head over to Lazarus's tomb. And Jesus gets there to say, move the stone. Martha's like, uh, Jesus, he's been dead for four days. There's already a stench. Don't open that stone, please. Don't move that stone. They move it anyways. I guarantee it stank. Uh, maybe not as bad as a baby's diaper, but I can't verify that because I've not been around a decayed body for four days. But it's like what I, it's what I like to suspect it to be. Lazarus is raised from the dead. Uh, and it says after this, many Jews believed. So Jesus was raised Lazarus from the dead. They end up going back to his house and having dinner or having a meal together to, to rekindle their friendship and say, Hey, so how, how's life now that you're back alive? Like, um, little small talk, simple things, but, uh, but it says many Jews believed in Christ after this. And then some of them went to the Jews or went to the chief priests and reported to them what Jesus had done. And then it only ignited the fire for the Jews to, to look for ways to kill Jesus. At this point, we shift back into Luke 17 in our reading, and it shares a story of 10 men who were healed of leprosy. It says they call out and ask Jesus to heal him. And Jesus says, go on, go uh, show yourself to the priests for the cleansing ritual to verify that you're healed. On the way there, it says that they are all, they are all healed. And then it says that only one returns to find Christ and thanks him. Um, and Jesus says, wasn't there 10 of you? What happened to the other nine? And it's, it ends with this idea that, well, the one that thanked Jesus was a Samaritan. And again, it brings up that Samaritan Jew tension and hostility and where there is this response and this humility and, re and repentance and acceptance of who Jesus was. Uh, continuing chapter 17 here, we see that there's a question about the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God would come. Uh, and, the, and Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Um, in essence, the idea is the, the Jewish population was anticipating an arrival. And I think, Evan, you talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but he was anticipating the arrival of a king to overthrow. I think it was an intertestamental period oh, in right, that yeah. first week there. But they were waiting for someone to overthrow a, a government. Uh, and Jesus like, no, stop looking ahead. Stop looking to the sky. Stop looking for the fulfillment of prophecy because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And it's this picture of the gospel and King Jesus is what Jesus is drawing attention to. Uh, and they were looking for signs and wonders for that. So Jesus says, hey, stop asking and looking to the skies. The kingdom of God is in your midst, which is about repentance and life and life abundant. And I'm King Jesus, so trust in me and follow me. Jesus alludes as well in, to the coming day when he will be gone, that there will be moments they long for the Son of Man, for the days of the Son of Man, but they won't, they won't be there anymore that there will be temptation to go after every flash or glimpse of what Christ is and could be. And Jesus says, in essence, don't chase after him. It's like he uses the analogy of lightning. Don't chase after lightning because you're never going to catch it. You're never going to find fulfillment um, because Jesus, in fact, is saying, I will come again. And then he continues to communicate through using Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah as examples. He says, in that time when I come again, people will be eating and drinking and marrying like the days of Noah, when the, the flood suddenly came upon them. Or like Sodom and Gomorrah, where people were eating, drinking, partying, buying, selling, doing all the things normal life of people do, and then destruction came upon them quickly. Jesus' arrival after he suffers will be sudden. It will not be expected. People will be eating and drinking, and we will be living a normal quote-unquote life, and then Jesus will arrive. Uh, and so the disciples then asked the Lord where, 
uh, where will this happen? And Jesus simply says, uh, it's kind of a morbid statement, but he says, where the corpses, vultures are too. In other words, he's saying the whole world will know where this takes place because there will be vultures circling the corpse. In other words, the world will be, the world cannot get away from the fact that it's going to happen. They're going to see the signs. They're going to see the example of where exactly Jesus shows up again. Uh, and so that's, that ends that, that conversation, chapter 17, we get into chapter 18 of, of Luke verses one through 14, where there's two parables. One about a, is a persistent widow, where it's this idea of persistency in prayer, where there's, excuse me, an unjust judge who uh, is continually being asked by a widow for judgment, and he gets annoyed with her constant requests. And so he finally says, I'm just going to give her justice so she'll stop bothering me. And so Jesus likens that to those of us who belong to God, that remember God is a better is better than the unrighteous judge, and he will act swiftly to those who continually cry out. So in essence, he says, don't stop praying and don't stop asking God to move or work or provide because he will, and he's not an unjust judge, he's a righteous judge. And so he will give you provision and favor as you need to. The second parable in chapter 18 here is a parable of the Pharisee and tax collector going to the temple and pray, where the Pharisee takes a prominent place in the temple and prays out loud, comparing himself to others and to the tax collector. And there's this pride in comparison that exists in the Pharisee. And then the tax collector takes this humility in position where he positions himself at the back of the temple and he postures himself where his head is down. And it says, the only thing he can do is beat his chest and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus makes a statement in this moment. It says, the tax collector is the one who went home justified in his prayer. That it wasn't about the pride, but it was about the humility to understand that we are all the tax collector. Oh, we all need the grace and, and, and mercy of Jesus. And then we, at this point in our reading, we kind of bring it down. We're starting to wrap it up as we shift back into like a, a synoptic, synoptic gospels account where we're going to start reading similar passages, similar accounts. The first of which we read is the Mark 10, 1 through 12 account and the Matthew 19, 1 through 12 account, which is where Jesus is questioned about divorce. Uh, it says that he leaves Galilee and heads to Judea. Crowds are gathering. So he taught them, which is normal circum or normal routine for him. He teaches them. It says the Pharisees at this point come up and ask him about divorce. In essence, he's saying, hey, what, is, what does the law say about divorcing? God asks them, or Jesus asks them, what does Moses say? Uh, and then Jesus reveals why Moses told them to write a certificate of divorce. Moses, he said, the Moses said this because of the hardness of your hearts. Um, and what he does is he reiterates the priority and value of marriage by referring to the Genesis account where God creates man and woman, where a man, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. It's a very significant conversation of God's intent in unifying a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. Uh, and it elevates the conversation of marriage back to its original created intent. See, the Pharisees were creating loopholes and creating avenues, and even by taking words of Moses and making it a justifiable reason where marriage was not a high priority or high commitment, it was, you looked at me wrong, you wore a different color that I didn't like you on or in, and so I'm going to just divorce you. Here's your certificate. Peace out. See you later. Jesus reignites the, the elevated conversation of marriage by telling them the reason why Moses gave you the out of a certificate of divorce it makes it okay is because your hearts are hard and you're unwilling to yield and die to yourselves, which is the Ephesians 5 tension that we'll get into later when Paul brings up marriage. Um, but it is what Jesus does. He takes a conversation where it's at and then re-elevates it back to where God intended it to. The Matthew account is a very similar account. There's not, I didn't notice a lot of 
anything that was massively different, maybe a little bit of the organizational of words, but pretty much all of the thoughts still stayed the same. Then we get this account in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, and then Matthew 19, 13 through 15, and then Luke 18, 15 to 17. They're all very similar accounts, but Jesus blesses the little children. Um, this is where we get the song, Jesus loves the little children of the world. Uh, not really, but he blesses little children where children at this point were brought to him. And again, Jesus, Jesus is teaching a crowd. A, a parents and adults are bringing children to him because they wanted Jesus to lay his hands on them and pray for them. Uh, but it says the disciples rebuked the people. Uh, in essence, like, hey, he doesn't have time for this. Get the kids out of here. And Jesus responds by rebuking them. It says, whoever doesn't receive, excuse me, the kingdom of God, like children shall not enter it. Uh, and it's this idea of like, what does he mean by that? If you watch a child who is learning about the kingdom, is learning about the gospel, is celebrating the hope and the life and the love of Jesus, there's an innocence and a faith that exists in them that isn't, isn't anchored to skepticism as much as it is anticipation. And, and so Jesus is saying, listen, those of you who uh, reject and, 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 and don't come into the kingdom, accepting that it is what I say it is, that I am who I say I am, you're not going to be able to enter it. So there has to be this level of faith. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't reason. It doesn't mean we shouldn't learn because Paul, we're told later on in Paul, give, be ready in, in, to give an account for the hope you have. So there's work. Each of you should work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So there is work that we're called to do. Um, but there is a certain level of childlikeness that we have to come in and trusting in the kingdom of God uh, because he established it and we will not have all the answers. And we've got to sometimes be okay with that. But Jesus blesses the children. He prays for them. He says, don't don't reject them for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then we, uh, I believe we wrap up this week with this pair or the story uh, of that is very familiar for many of us if we've been in the church, um, which is the story of a rich young ruler. Uh, coupled with this idea of riches and reward for discipleship. And so I'm going to read Mark chapter 17. The last chunk I'm going to read is the, the, the whole of Mark that we're reading this week. All the way to verse 31, it says this, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and went away grieving because he had many possessions. Then it continues on after this, this, this moment, this interaction with this rich man. It says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to him, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the gospel, sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are, are first will be last and the last will be first. And it's, it's in this moment, we get this 
account of a rich young ruler who's rich. He comes to Jesus, asks what must he do, what must he do. Jesus explains the commandments to which he says he's kept them, obviously, as I just read. Jesus responds in love. And I love that that line first. It says, Jesus saw, looked at him and loved him. And it's and it's rooted in that love, in that com- compassion for this rich young man that Jesus then challenges him, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me, because then you will have riches in eternity, that you will be more fulfilled and more satisfied in eternity because of the riches that are await you as you sacrifice and sell and give to the poor because of the hope you have in me. And so Jesus encourages him to place his hope, joy, and security in Christ after selling everything. Uh, and then he shifts into the discord about the, of how difficult it will be to enter the kingdom of heaven for the rich, which is a very challenging statement to consider. I think I underlined this part of this portion of my Bible where it's just the idea that how difficult it will be for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Because, I, I mean, we live in America. If, if you're listening to this podcast, you don't live in America, then that doesn't relate to you. But the majority of us do. We live in, in a very wealthy country. And I can understand to a degree how difficult it is to follow Christ because I don't always need him to show up. I don't always need him to provide. And the, the tension that this rich young man was, was living in, the tension the wealthy live in is I don't need, I don't recognize my need as much as I have need because of my wealth. It masks and blinds me to understand how wretched, poor, broken I really am. And so Jesus makes this very harsh statement, but very clear, and it's, it's rooted in love. And so it's not meant to be, uh, uh, um, demeaning and degrading, but it's meant to be revealing. Um, so that way they have their hope and understand what they lose on this side of eternity, they will gain tenfold, hundredfold in eternity. And so that's the, the tension he's playing. Matthew 19, 16 to 30 adds this, this one element to the commands, which I think was really interesting to the rich young ruler. And it adds the statement of love your neighbor as yourself to the list of those commands, which I thought was really interesting uh, because it's not technically a command that he's given. It's something Jesus said. Um, so the rich young ruler probably would have already heard that and understood that that's part of the tension to live in. Uh, and then it also adds in the new world when the son of man shall sit on his glorious throne. Uh, so it just talks about the world to come, which is eternity. Uh, and that's what Matthew adds. But the rest of it is a similar account. And the Luke 18 account is very similar as well. Uh, but it is. He, we end with this this challenge and this tension to understand uh, the the reality of entering the kingdom of heaven. The first will be last. The last will be first. Which then draws my mind back all the way to the the rich man versus Lazarus uh, parable that Jesus taught to compare about the idea of the wealthy live the best life now they'll enter and last in eternity and vice versa for the poor. So, but that's where this week's end readings end in the book of Luke. There you be. Well, before we sign off, let's talk about what we learned today. Well, we went a little bit long today, so I don't think we're going to be able to get to a question, but we don't worry. We have them. We will get to them here in the coming weeks. But my my simple application this week would just be the idea of Jesus reminding us to live in humility and how as Christians, that is what we're called to. We are called to live not in arrogance, but we're called to submit ourselves in, in ways that oftentimes I think the world thinks is strange. And the reason we're called to do that is because it's an accurate representation of who we are. And I think it's if when we if we truly believed that Jesus is who he says he is, and if we truly believe that we're saved because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do, then of course we're going to live in humility. Uh, and so I think it's an important thing for that Jesus reminds us of because I think it's it's so easy to get caught up. And I say this as someone who can like I can very easily get super proud and annoying and arrogant. No. Uh, and so it, it's important for me to daily remember who I am. And to remember that I am where I am because of what God has done, not because of what I have done. 
and to yeah to to strive to live in humility so that's that's my takeaway for this week yeah that's really good yeah that's a hard one too living in humility um i think for me the one that hit the most for me this week was um kind of what i alluded to at the end there just the idea of how hard and how difficult it will be for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven uh that it'll be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle which is just crazy and insane to think about as it is um because a camel's massive compared to a, the a, a needle and thread um, but I, and I want to be careful, right? Cause it's not, I don't want to condone or can feel condemned living where I live in the status that I live with the bank account I have. Like, it's not just about the wealthy possessions, but I would go back to even the, the, the tension Jesus created about financial use. Like, how, am I stewarding the resources to further his kingdom? And it's not about give, give, give. Like we have, we have individuals that are on late night shows or even daytime shows that say, hey, give, and it will be given back to you. You give me this amount, I believe God's going to double it. Um, and that's not, that's not always true. It's not fair. It's manipulative to say that. It's deceitful to say that. Um, that if you give a $5,000 gift, then you're going to get $10,000 back in a week. Like if we, it's, we don't give to get. It's not how God always operates. But God does reward. God does bless and provide. What I, what I really wrestled with this week with this tension was not so much the idea of, man, I'm wealthy, it's going to be hard for me to enter the kingdom, but man, I need to become more aware of my need for Jesus every day of my life, that I have a tendency to provide for myself, I have a tendency to figure things out on my own and not pray about situations and not ask God for wisdom and circumstances and not invite the wisdom and the grace and the mercy of the Holy Spirit to help me be everything God intended me to be, to live how God intends me and desires me to live, that it's really easy for me to get caught up in my own efforts and my own abilities, um, which makes it really difficult because culturally I live in a way that I can provide for myself and take care of myself. But I need to be more aware of my need every single day. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. There's never a caveat. There's never an asterisk. There's never a but. Um, I need Jesus, period. And so it was really challenging to consider and think through that lens a little bit this week as I was reading. And so um, just something to encourage and challenge us with as well is just this idea of we need them. Absolutely. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.